0: Good morning. Um, as you guys know, our normal practice here is to walk through books of the Bible, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, the next two weeks, we're going to be just doing something a little bit different. Um, we will be starting through the book of Mark uh, two weeks from now. But for the next two weeks, we're going to kind of stop and focus in on uh, something that's important for us to think about, uh, not just once, but to think about uh, every now and again. Um, Specifically this morning, we're going to be talking about the purpose of church. Why do we even exist as a church? And then next week, we're going to be talking about church leadership and what the Bible has to say about that. So um, welcome to 2020, uh, a new year and a new decade. So uh, we need a new vision for the church, right? Right. The times are changing, and we live in a different culture, so certainly 2020 seems like a perfect time to reinvent or reimagine ourselves as a church. Not so fast. Uh, I wanted to start 2020 in this way specifically because I actually believe that our mission and purpose as a church never changes. Uh, As Christians... We're called to contend for an ancient faith. Uh, In Jude 1.3, it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 2 Timothy 1.13-14, Paul says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So we're not looking at innovation language here in the text. Uh, look at how Paul concisely shares the gospel. Uh, we read the, this text in its entirety earlier, but 1 Corinthians 15:3 through 4, Paul says for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he's delivering what he also received, nothing new but eternally true. Uh, There's A modern author and thought leader, who some of you might have heard, his name is Simon Sinek. Um, Not like cynicism, S-I-N-E-K, Simon Sinek. Uh, And I generally love his stuff. And he wrote a book called Start With Why. Uh, And his general thesis is this. He's got this kind of circle thing going on. Um, There's always, he says, there's always a what, a how, and a why for every organization. Uh, regardless of who you are. But most organizations start on the outer circle with the what, and they move inward. By the time they get to the why, uh, they either don't answer that question of why they exist, or it's usually pretty fuzzy. Uh, and Cynic's main point is that we should do exactly the opposite of that uh, and start with why. Before we start talking about product or even process, we should know our motivation or why we exist. And I think he's right there. And while he's writing primarily to businesses and entrepreneurs, I think this is a really helpful idea for us as a church as well. So as a church, what's our why? What's our primary purpose for existing Uh, We're going to start there and then kind of move out and talk a bit about the how, uh, which I also believe is spelled out in Scripture and doesn't change. Uh, The the what's may change slightly from church to church and place to place and culture to culture, Um, but the why and the how never do, uh, and they're spelled out clearly for us in the text. Uh, It's great for us to know a lot of things about the church, and it's good and right for us as Christians to know these things. But if we ultimately don't know what the purpose of the church is, I'm suggesting this morning that it's all in vain. So what is the purpose of the church? What's our mission? Many have suggested that the mission of the church is saving the planet, or social justice, or or kind of syncretism, unifying all, all religions. Some say that the church is meant to be a social club, where social status or standing is conferred. Others say that the church's mission is to be a holy huddle, keeping us out of the world. Others think that the church's purpose is for us to kind of be an affinity group, based around what you like to do, or what age you are, or what kind of music you like. Still, others think that the purpose of church is to kind of keep a heritage of fond memories that they had when they were a kid. Others say that the purpose of the church is to heal, or to liberate, or even to give you a moral standing with God. Um, I didn't make that list up. I've read each of those Ideas put forth in different books trying to describe what the church is and what what she's called to do. Uh, While some of the above purposes obviously are dead wrong, others have bits and pieces of it right. But none of these things fully grasp the purpose of the church. So what is the purpose of the church? Uh, I really believe that we only have one purpose as Christians— and as the church. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. To glorify God. The why behind every single thing that we do as Christians and as a church is to glorify God. Uh, One of the most famous catechisms in church history, uh, the, the Westminster, starts with this question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I want to suggest this morning that the same is true for us as a church. The church's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We don't exist here as Santa Cruz Baptist to to fill your schedules or to entertain or to make us comfortable. Uh, We don't exist as an in-person Facebook group. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So everything that we do better lead to that end. If we can't answer the question, how does this glorify God and enjoy him forever? We shouldn't be doing it as a church. So at the center of the target uh, of the, the Y circles is... Glorifying God. Now, to the house. Uh, many theologians have given different thoughts on this question, and while they all classified them differently, they all seem to be saying the, the same thing. And I want to start out this morning by looking at two of the more famous passages in the Bible, uh, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. So the Great Commandment, Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. This is the words of Jesus. It says, And one of them, a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And here are Jesus' words, verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. It's the the great commandment, Matthew 22, 35 through 40. Then the great commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. These are some of the last words of Jesus. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In these two passages, uh, I believe that, that we see five major ministries of the church. Uh, these are the hows that, that never change. Uh, again, each event or initiative that we do as a church should fit into one of these five categories. Number one, worship. Uh, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That, that's what worship is. Second, ministry. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Third, evangelism. He says, go and make disciples. Fourth, fellowship. Baptizing them. Um, we're going to walk through why I would connect baptizing them to fellowship in a little bit. And then fifth, discipleship. He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Uh, Even more than the great commandment and the great commission, uh, we also see these five ministries present in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is at at the beginning uh, of the church. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. day by day, those who were being saved. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's discipleship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. It says all believers were together and had everything in common. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That's fellowship. They devoted themselves again to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. They continued to meet together in the temple courts, praising God, worship. They were selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. They were enjoying the favor of all people. That's ministry. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They're clearly doing evangelism. What I want us to do with the rest of our time, is to really deep dive it and look at these five ministries or hows and then discuss a little bit of what they look like. So here we go. Number one, worship. We're commanded to worship God. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, This is Jesus citing Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Psalm 34, 1-3. through three. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Over and over and over and over again, the scriptures call us to worship God. And then they give us examples of people who are heeding that call. Now, without being too blunt, if... You missed this part of glorifying God. Um, I, I don't know what Bible you're reading. Um, it's everywhere. It's almost on every page. But what is worship? Uh, that, that's a word we throw around a lot. And when we say that, that's one of our chief purposes is worship. But what is worship? Well, I would define worship as our affirmative, transforming response to the self revelation of God. Uh, our affirmative, transforming response to the self-revelation of God. And each of the, these words is crucial. First of all, uh, our affirmative. In order to worship God or to praise God, we've got to make sure that we're actually worshiping the correct God, the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible. Um, I love this illustration from, it's a book called Worship Matters by Bob Coughlin. Uh, and he says this, He says, let's say you and I run into each other at Starbucks and you start telling me how much you've enjoyed getting to know my son Jordan. I'm delighted, he says. You go on to describe him as a five foot two saxophonist who has an avid interest in cooking Italian food and playing cricket. I give you a funny look. You must be thinking of someone else. Jordan is a six foot tall drummer who loves to eat, not cook Italian food. And though he excels in many sports, cricket isn't one of them. But you continue extolling a short, sax-playing, pasta-cooking cricket player as you repeat several times, he's just a great guy. (laughs) Such praise would be meaningless because it would be based on inadequate and inaccurate information. Your doctrine of Jordan would be wrong. And however strong your appreciation, I think you'd like him more after discovering what he's really like. It's like that with us and God, he says. He calls us not only to love him, but to love the truth about him. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 We worship the one who says he is the truth and who tells us the truth will set you free. Simply put, uh, for, for worship to be meaningful, it must be affirmative of the truth of who God is as revealed in Scripture. So it must be affirmative or true things that we're seeing and saying about God. Second, it must be transforming. Christian worship must be transformative. Uh, simply reciting true things about God in an affirming way isn't worship unless it changes you to be more like him. Uh, look with me at Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 10 and go all the way through 4:11, Jonah 3:10 verse uh, through 4:11 says, when God saw what they did, He's talking about Nineveh here. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord. Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and, a mercif- and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. You can almost see him shaking his fist at God as he's saying this, right? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came, upon, uh, came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So here in this text, Jonah, again, kind of shaking his fist at God, he quotes Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, Psalm 86, 5, and 15, and Joel chapter 2, verses 13, as well as Nehemiah nine seventeen. But he has no transformation. He's saying true, affirmative things about God all over the place, He's quoting Scripture back at God. But his heart isn't changed. This isn't worship. Does your doctrine or your proclamation of God show the world around you that God is worthy because of your transformed life? This is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1-2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So worship must be affirmative or true about God. It must be transformative. Third, it must be a response. Uh, Remember that that worship of God is a response to who God is and what he's done. Worship can't earn your salvation. Good works can't earn your salvation. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is kind of the, the core of the gospel. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which are which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so true worship is a response to that truth the truth of the gospel true worship is much much more than singing It involves all of our lives. So, does your life display the character of God? Does it affirm the truth of who he is as a response to the gospel? That's worship. But, what does it look like practically? Well, let's look again at what the Bible says. As we look at these passages, I want us to see that That biblical worship is much, much more than singing, but it involves singing too. And when we sing, there's both a, a vertical aspect to what we're doing and a horizontal aspect to it. What do I mean by that? Well, let me show you. Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17 Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Here we go. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, in one sense, worship through song is vertical, praise of God, proclamation about God, giving thanks to God. But, in another sense, worship through song is horizontal, Uh, verse 19 of Ephesians 5, it says, addressing who? One another. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But Drew, what about the phrase I've always heard, that worship is an audience of one? Sounds spiritual, looks good on a Christian t-shirt, but it's not biblical. It's very individualistic. It's very much a, a me and Jesus theology, which I hope you guys see, it's not what we're after. No, we're we're actually supposed to address one another as well when we sing. Sometimes we need to encourage one another with the truths that we're singing. As I'm singing, I'm actually looking around and singing to encourage your hearts as we spur one another on to Christ's likeness. Remember Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near so don't you think that this stirring up and encouraging happens when we sing as well as when we share truth in one-on-one conversation it does now look back with me at colossians 3 again verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Addressing one another through song also has the purpose of admonishment. So sometimes I come to the worship service and I have crummy thinking about God that needs to be admonished or corrected. Guess what? When the church sings truth, it accomplishes that purpose as well. When I stand amidst the congregation and hear hundreds of you singing truth about who God is, my thinking is corrected and God is glorified through that. You have more than an audience of one, brothers and sisters. In line with that, but in more of a positive fashion, addressing one another with songs also helps us to remember I might come in and be in a time of mourning. I need to be reminded of God's goodness and his faithfulness, even when I'm in a valley. There are a hundred truths about God that I need to be reminded of daily. Hearing the church sing songs helps us as Christians in that endeavor. So worship through song is both vertical and horizontal. but. It's accomplishing one more thing. When we worship as a church, it accomplishes unity in the body and evangelism. We represent Christ as a spiritual body and a physical unity to a lost world around us, according to or 1 Corinthians 14. It talks about an unbeliever who comes into the midst of the church, hears them singing truth, hears them speaking truth, and comes to know the truth of who God is. So when we we worship together, we display God's glory. The body's built up, and the outsider can come to understand the truth about God. Uh, Worship is an amazing, amazing facet of the church. Uh, Second, ministry. Uh, The second aspect of the church found in the great uh, commandment is love, love your neighbor as yourself. We call this ministry. Well, what what is ministry? Uh, Rick Warren has defined ministry as this, demonstrating God's love to others by meeting their needs and healing their hurts in the name of Jesus. I like that. Uh, I think he's right in that. Scripturally, we're called to minister to both believers and not yet believers. Uh, We see this in, in the pattern of Jesus's life over and over and over again. He ministers to many different types of people in many different ways. Uh, So as the church, we should constantly be coming up with creative ways to minister to people. We should also minister to people, not just in creative ways, but also in tried and true, boring, normal everyday ways as well. Uh, Each time you reach out in love to another, you're ministering to them. Uh, As the church, we minister to all kinds of needs. Spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical. But this raises the question, who who is a minister in the church? Unfortunately, a lot of people would answer that question by saying, well, a minister in a church is a paid professional. They're the ministers in the church. That's what we pay them for, right? To minister. But that's not what the scripture teaches, Look with me at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It says, And he, meaning God, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. On down in verse 15, it says, Rather speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see that? Pastors are gifts given to the church to equip who? The saints for the work of ministry. Yes, a pastor is called to minister, but more than that, they're called to equip the church to minister. In a biblical church, every member is a minister. God has given each and every Christian spiritual gifts, which he intends for them to use in ministry. The question is, are we stewarding those gifts well? I want to encourage each of you to spend time thinking about that. How has God gifted you? Are you using those gifts to minister to believers and to not yet believers? Where has God called you to minister? It's not a question of if, but where. Loving people is ministry. Third, evangelism. What is evangelism? Well, the word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means gospel, or good news. In its most basic form, evangelism is the sharing of the good news of Jesus. While we focus mainly on the call given to us in Matthew 28 that I read earlier, Christ actually gave us five great commissions in the New Testament. Matthew 28, Mark 16 verse 15, Luke 24, 47 through 49, and Acts 1:8. In each of these places, Jesus calls us to go, or or as you're going, to share the message of salvation. While uh, I would love to to discuss that further, and this could be a a full sermon in and of itself, I want to recommend a couple of good books on this topic uh, that would be worth worth your while. Uh, Number one is a a book called A Meal with Jesus, uh, Discovering Grace, Community, and Mission Around the Table by Tim Chester. Uh, This book just looks at... What it looks like to do evangelism with meals. You have 21 meals each week that you have. What would it look like to use a couple of them uh, to share the good news of Jesus? Uh, Second, J.A. Packers, evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Really helpful look at what what does it mean that God's both sovereign, but that we're called to share the good news as his agents. Uh, Third, the gospel and personal evangelism. If you've gone through our membership class or if you're going to today, you'll get this book for free. Um, So really helpful book on on what it means uh, to to share the gospel. Um, And then fifth, Evangelism uh, by Max Stiles, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus. So all of those are are really helpful. Um, But with that being said, I want to ask a couple of questions about evangelism and hopefully clarify a few things for us. So first of all, who should evangelize? Uh, Again, is evangelism only for the the paid professionals, only for full-time pastors, only for extreme extroverts, or or for those who have PhDs in theology? Or is it the responsibility and joy of all Christians? Well, while certain passages like uh, Ephesians 4.11 that I read earlier, they, they point to certain people having the gift of evangelism, I believe every single Christian is called to evangelize. Uh, Those who have the gift of evangelism are are able to evangelize with relative ease, and praise God for that. But we believe that the Great Commission is given to all of us. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, it's beautiful. We see every day normal Christians, empowered by the Holy Spirit, being scattered and preaching the word boldly. Now, this doesn't mean that that everyone's evangelism has to look like John the Baptist, uh, the the somewhat eccentric, loud extrovert who's out there yelling at people. Uh, But it does mean that each of us are responsible for sharing the good news of Jesus. Uh, What I'm trying to say is that evangelism isn't a one-size-fits-all mold. Uh, It can look very different and accomplish the same goal. Sometimes it's an individual sharing the gospel, but evangelism is, is not always a solo endeavor. Sometimes it's a team sport, where a not-yet-believer experiences and hears the gospel from multiple people, either over time or in one sitting. Uh, evangelism isn't meant to be another thing that you tack on to your already busy schedules. Leverage what you're already doing. Evangelism should be part of the normal everyday rhythm of life. In fact, Two platforms that we're actually going to be launching this year are directly aimed at this. Number one, something we're calling missional communities. Uh, You're going to hear a lot more about this in the coming weeks and months. Uh, But these these small groups are are going to be aimed at those who don't yet know Jesus. We're going to have three different options for you to choose from in in the new year. Um, Second, we're going to be starting an initiative called Who's Your One? Uh, where where each of us are going to be intentional about a minimum of one person that we're praying for and pursuing with the gospel. More to come on that as well. So missional communities and who's your one. Uh, I'm genuinely excited about both of those, but I do want to clarify one last thing. Uh, You and I cannot make anyone believe in Christ. Uh, It doesn't matter how smart you are or how well prepared your presentation of the gospel is. You and I can't make anyone believe in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7, Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God. Who gives the growth? I would also point you to the parable of the sower. Uh, we're called to sa- ca- scatter seed indiscriminately all over the place, but only some of those seeds are going to bear fruit. We aren't responsible for the growth or the quality of the soil. God is. So, what this means is this First, if God is the one who is responsible for, con- for conversion, evangelism is not the results of evangelism. I'll say that again. If God is the one responsible for conversion, evangelism is not the results of evangelism. If you're faithful to share the gospel, you have been faithful in evangelism, regardless of the outcome, if the person receives Christ. Second, if God is the one responsible for conversion, evangelism must begin with prayer. Uh, any attempt at sharing the gospel must be bathed in prayer. So pray for your neighbors, pray for your friends, pray for your family. Have your church pray for them too. Okay, let's move on. Fourth, fellowship. For those of us who grew up in Baptist churches, uh, we hear the word fellowship, and we immediately think of a dimly lit hall, kind of some Torn up tile floors, punch and cookies, right? We see a, a fellowship hall in a Baptist building when we hear the word. But uh, the biblical portrait of fellowship between believers is so much more. Biblical fellowship is real, shared spiritual life. Friendships that, that are Christ-centered, word-centered, sometimes confrontive in, in the right way. Uh, the New Testament knows no such thing of a Christian who is a real Christian and doesn't belong to a local church, having regular fellowship with them. In fact, that the passage we read earlier, Hebrews 10.25, actually commands this. Uh, the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, has spent the bulk of his book up to this point teaching us about the gospel. So chapters 1 through 9 uh, of Hebrews are all fleshing out the clarity of the gospel, and then he turns and gives implications of this gospel, uh, starting in Hebrews ten nineteen. So I'm going to read for us Hebrews ten nineteen through 25. He says, so in light of the first nine chapters, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, Uh, Again, there's so much more that that we could say about fellowship, but uh, I want to be clear that that fellowship is one of the purposes of the church that serves the ultimate purpose uh, of glorifying God. Uh, True biblical fellowship is much more than just church attendance. Uh, It's about being an active member of God's family. Uh, We're called to be active participants in one another's lives, Uh, and that happens more than just for, for one and a half hours on Sunday morning. Fifth, and finally, discipleship. Uh, In the Great Commission, Jesus says that that we are to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's discipleship. Uh, Once someone has become a Christian, the goal is to help that person with the scriptures to become more like Christ in the way that they think, and in the way that they feel, and in the way that they act. We're called to reach people for Christ— but we're also called to teach them. So, what does it mean to become like Christ? Again, God doesn't leave us in the dark in answering that question. Uh, The Bible is our go-to source to help us obey all that Christ has commanded us. Discipleship is something that we should never grow out of. I hope that I'm still growing as a disciple till the day I die. You don't graduate from needing to grow as a disciple. But, practically, what does that look like? Well, discipleship looks like regularly attending worship services, sitting under the faithful preaching of God's Word. It looks like intently listening to that Word preached and intentionally trying to apply it to your life. Instead of rushing out of the sanctuary as quick as possible on Sunday, consider hanging around having a conversation with someone about the sermon. Maybe let that carry over into lunch. Discipleship looks like sitting down one-on-one with a group of people or a one-on-one with a friend to study the Bible. Has God put anyone in your life that you might be able to study Scripture with? Pray about who that might be and ask them if they would commit to reading maybe the book of Mark with you. You don't have to make a lifelong commitment to them to read the book of Mark. Just commit to reading one book together and go from there. Within, uh, again, our missional communities that I mentioned earlier, um, there's going to be this built-in opportunity for this type of thing called a DNA group, where, where you get together with two men or two women, open the Bible, and talk about it for a little bit. Uh, discipleship looks like doing a book study and trying to encourage other in, others in your sphere of influence to pursue Christ on a daily basis. Uh, We have so, so, so many good resources at at our disposal. Uh, As you guys know, I I can recommend a ton of different books that that you might want to study. Maybe you just finished a book that, that stirred your thinking about Christ. Recommend it to someone. Share it with someone. That's discipleship. Discipling someone, just to be clear, isn't claiming to be perfect or that you have it all together. Far from it. It's about pursuing Christ with someone else. It's about obeying Christ's commands and teaching others to do the same. Uh, I would encourage each and every one of you to, to seek out discipling relationships. Uh, if you're new to the faith, grab someone who, who's a faithful Christian. Ask them if they'd be willing to meet with you and study the Bible. If you're more mature in the faith, look for someone else to disciple. And When you start to meet together to study the Bible, you're both going to learn and you're both going to grow whether you're the disciple or the disciple In reality, we're all after the same goal. And according to the scriptures, every Christian is a disciple. We're just trying to help each other along in the process. So uh, these are, are the five ministries of the church, which I believe all serve the one purpose of glorifying God. We see uh, these things present in, in the ministries of Jesus, of Paul, and in the New Testament church. Uh, These ministries might look different depending on where you are in the world, but each of these ministries should be present in every church for the glory of God. Uh, If you were here for our our last members meeting, uh, we walked through a a document called The Church I See. Uh, So we sent that out to you guys in email form. If you didn't get it, uh, we printed out hard copies back here. Um, That document really begins to put some some flesh and and bones on, on what I've just talked about. Uh, from a 30,000 foot view, we believe that, that the reason we exist is up, in and out. So up, worshiping God, enjoying and glorifying Him. Uh, in. There's 47 one anothers in the New Testament that we're actually called to do with one another and for one another. Um, that's, that's part of, of um, fellowship, It's part of discipleship. Um, it's part of ministry. Doing those one another's. And then out, uh, we're called to evangelism. I'm really excited about uh, the new year. So Faith has kind of been working on three art pieces that are going to hang in these three windows that kind of represent up, in, and out. Um, At its core, that's why we exist as a church, to do those three things, not just as individuals, but together as Santa Cruz Baptist Church. And so really encourage you to to pick up uh, that document called The Church I See. Read through it with your families. Talk through what, it, what your part is in that. Um, get excited about it and ask questions about it. Um, so we walked through kind of the, the core of why we exist. We talked about um, the what, uh, and then there, there's more how to come. Um, so that's part of what we walk through in our membership class. So if you've never been through that, that's a good place to hear our philosophy of ministry and kind of how we do the why and the what. Um, So with that being said, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll move forward. Lord, we thank you so much, both for your son, for dying on the cross to save us from our sin, and we thank you for the gift of the church, that you uh, don't just save us and leave us alone, but you save us and bring us into fellowship with your bride, the church. Lord, we thank you for um, just everyone who has linked arms here and run more towards you. Lord, we pray that you would just continue to unify us, give us humility and love for our neighbor. Lord, we thank you for the good news of Jesus.